Okay, you ready, AP? Ready when you are. Let's lay this baby down. Lofty, you on the guitar, mate. You're right, Scope. Yep, standing by. Bertie, you on the bass? Yep, ready to go. All right, here we go then. One, two, three, four. Just two good old boys. Two good old boys. Never meeting a harm. Before we never saw the hand, no hair since the day they was born. Straighten the curves. Straighten the curves. Flatten the heels. The coffee might get them, but the Lord never will. For casting away the only way they know how. With a little more mojo than the Lord will allow. And welcome to the seventh season, how the seasons pass on the Mojo Radio Show. Regular listeners, welcome back on board the Big Red Bus, we know as the Mojo Radio Show. If you're here for the first time, welcome. Good to have you on board the bus. We just find interesting people who, in some aspect of their world, we think have their mojo working. And it's a wide and varied conversation, it's fair to say, over seven seasons. But we find out kind of what they're doing, how they do it, what makes them get their mojo working so we can take that, apply it to our world and probably just as importantly find somebody else that we know who could be struggling or just feeling a bit vanilla and we help them to get their mojo working. The crew is all on board the bus, taking the tickets at the front of the bus. Robbo, well, welcome. Tickets, please. (laughs) <laughs> Have the withering oaks strapped on the boots yet? Uh, no, three weeks time. But uh, the Dural slash Northern Barbarians joint venture opens team has uh, commenced their pre-season training on the weekend, which was a bit of fun. Get everyone nice. together. Good. Rugby season's underway in season seven. Uh, let's get this show on the road. Remarkable fact. Robbo's Remarkable Facts. It's about time. Let's go. We, uh, off air last week, we were, you and I were talking about the effects uh, exercise can have on learning. So I took it upon myself to educate us both a little more. And I came across a study out of Germany that's been ratified by a number of other professionals in the field. Uh, and basically what they did in Germany was they took a group of about 80 German-speaking women and gave them a half-hour recording of words in German along with their Polish equivalent and asked them to learn the new words. Now, they were all given headphones. One group listened in silence for 30 minutes. One group rode an exercise bike at a gentle speed for 30 minutes. And the third group 
rode uh, exercise bikes at what they describe as a mild intensity for 30 minutes, whilst all while listening to the same list. Two days later, they got the group back together and asked them to recite the Polish words that they could remember along with their meaning. Now, while they all remembered some, by far the best performing group was those who had listened whilst riding the exercise bikes gently interestingly enough. So while they're still investigating the results, obviously, it seems that scientists are beginning to see that a light intensity exercise will elicit low but noticeable levels of psychological arousal, which in turn helps to prime the brain for the intake of new information and the encoding of that information into memories. Yeah, Ben Greenfield reported on this on his show, it was quite a little while ago, probably a year or so ago, he talked about this and he covered off that study. And I must admit, I listen to a lot of podcasts whilst I am moving at a gentle pace. The only thing I would say is I wouldn't trust my memory for it. So I always carry, as David Allen talked about, carrying a notepad and pen with me, even if it's small, just to jog down any words or things I want to remember. So I, I, I agree with it. I think the principle of it works great. I think there's a lot of science sounds like because you are exercising, activating different pathways of your brain. And I think that's really valuable. The only caveat that I would say to these German women is take a pen and paper with you. Yeah, right. Well, based on that research, I've actually been onto eBay. I've ordered my exercise bike and a audio copy of a book called Beer Brewing for Beginners. Do you think I should cancel that? No, because I reckon that given the fact we're coming into winter, that exercise bike will be a closed rack within 30 days. I guarantee, as is 99% of exercise bikes across the world end up becoming a closed rack during winter. Oh, there you go. A quick quick shout out to my wife who bought a treadmill. I thought the same thing, but I've got to say, six months later, she's still on it every night. Kudos, kudos is due. The Mojo Radio Show. Our guest this week sent me a book And I read the book and I really enjoyed it. And the author is Ashley Ambrosier, better known as Ash on the program. Now, this is a book called The Middle Finger Project. But before you kind of react, think, oh, that's a bit, bit full on. The book actually isn't, it doesn't come across the same way perceptually as the title would have you think. 20 years ago, Ash was a small-town girl growing up in a trailer park in rural Pennsylvania. And 15 years ago, she lost her family. And then she created a career in advertising. That, that didn't work out for her. She had a relationship breakdown. And then before long, she found herself sleeping in her car in a car park, which we'll cover during the show. Now, at that point, it's where Ash decided to actually pursue her own dreams as a creative writer. And she quickly built a six-figure business doing what she actually loved using nothing more than the internet and her voice. Ash leads a tribe of fans across the world who follow her middle finger project. And that's now become like a kind of media company in a way that helps all of us find our voice and then shows us how to use it to build whatever we want to build. It's actually a really interesting story. The book is fresh on the shelf. Ash, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted. When you meet people who don't know who you are, 
and they ask you what you do, how do you like to reply? Well, the very first thing I tell them all the time is that I'm a zoologist. And then I see what what they say. I gauge the reaction because I definitely don't look like a zoologist. And then we get into it a little bit. And I tell them that I'm, I'm the founder of the Middle Finger Project, obviously. You speak in a very natural, down-to-earth, authentic tone. And on your website, you said, I mean, you do a lot of interviews. And you said quite often you get on interviews and people are, they sell you they're so nervous. And you say, look, you know, get over it. I grew up in a trailer park, for God's sake. <laughs> tell me, tell us about that. When, when you think back to that time, if we take you back to that time of living in a trailer park, do you still consciously take yourself back there to look at where you've come from? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's important. I think growing up in a, in a place in rural Pennsylvania in a trailer park with a mom who had severe clinical social anxiety, couldn't leave the house. Uh, we were on governmental assistance. I, I grew up not really seeing what, what work should look like. And I became fascinated with this topic of figuring out what it was to live a good life and do work that you are proud of. So that inadvertently was the catalyst for me, uh, essentially starting what I'm going to call the middle class project for the first half of my life and going in this direction and closely observing all of the human beings around me in every setting to see how they worked and what things they were eating, how they dressed, trying to fit in. And then you know, later in life, it led me down a different direction to start the middle finger project. But I will say that uh, I am, yes, I'm always aware of my background and how it's influenced me and the decisions I've been making. I think it's something that um, was one of the best things that ever happened to me, frankly. If you go from your childhood in a trailer park and then your work primarily when you started out was in marketing and kind of PR, what was the moment you actually decided that rather than work for others, you do it for yourself. And, and what I'm curious about is that something you wrote about in the book, you said, we keep working for the wrong things, things like money, for example. But what I didn't realize then is that money can't cure the deep satisfaction of a person who's exasperated by their own life. When you think back to that period, you must meet a lot of people who feel exasperated. What was the actual moment where you decided to take the step? There were a couple of things going on simultaneously. But I will say that one of the things that was most disappointing to me was discovering that traditional work and success for that matter lacks real genuine wit and imagination and creativity and originality. And I was finding, I was kind of bumping up against all these walls in my corporate career where Uh, those things weren't being rewarded. Some of the research that I've done over the years talks about this difference between what it is to be happy, uh, happiness and meaningfulness. And the difference between the two is simply happiness is about getting what you want, right? So like the salary, the job, great. And then meaningfulness is about getting what you want while also expressing and defining yourself while you do it. That for me was the missing piece. And the moment when I realized I really needed to strike it out on my own uh, was when my regional director flew in. I was in advertising sales and he went on a ride-along meeting with me. It was a very important account 
And I thought that I, I was giving my all. I was connecting with the client. I thought it was going to be great. And then at the end of the meeting, they said the, the kiss of death, which was, okay, great. We'll think about it and get back to you. And in that moment, I knew, my, I mean, oh, I had embarrassed myself. My regional director's watching me. We walked out into the parking lot. And he said to me, you know, Ash, you're not there to make friends. You're there to make money. And I think you need to tone it down a bit. And at first I thought he was right. I was mortified. And I got into the car just completely defeated. We're driving along for no, lo- no longer than five minutes when the phone rang. And the client called and they said, Ash, just kidding. You know what? We loved you so much. We're just going to do it right now. And in fact, can we make it double? And that was one of the reasons that I realized that, gosh, I don't think that people understand the value of their own creativity. That was the moment for me when I thought, I've got something useful here that I think I can do something with. One of the things that I took from the book is, apart from the the tone and style of your writing, which is quite unique, the other thing I took from it is that I guess there's a hope that people read the book and at least do an audit on themselves because something you wrote in the book, you said, we resign ourselves to sticking it out, making the best of it, focusing on the good. Is, is part of this the book to be a catalyst to at least do the audit to say, is that you? And is there more in you that's more meaningful? Is that kind of the, the mission that you're on is to get people to, to have this conversation with themselves? Yeah, the mission I'm on is to get people to stop being grateful for what they've got. I think it's some of the world's worst and most dangerous advice that anyone can be giving to another person, um, especially people who are in a position where they've got kind of a decent job. And that's where this guilt is coming in because they're going, well, geez, I mean, you know, I make enough money. I've got a roof over my head. I you know, I've got some nice things. I can go to Target and, and the grocery store and fill up my cart and get whatever I want. And those are those are the people who are living out of that guilt. So this book is like, hey, listen, I know I, that's that little feeling of anarchy inside of you. Chase it down. Go follow your most dangerous ideas. It's actually mission critical that you do. It's a very real emergency when you're not actually feeling fulfilled by your own life. Speaking of being unfulfilled, you went through that period in marketing and PR, you had success. And then what seems to be a pivotal moment in this whole story for you, Ash, is you mentioned Target, (laughs) which sits alongside a Kmart. And you find yourself sleeping in your car in a Kmart parking lot. How, how did that come to be? And how long were you actually living in your own car? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, that's the thing. Right? You start off you start off going down this road of like the middle class project and doing all of the right things, especially for someone like me who had grown up thinking that I had to do everything the right way as my big insurance policy to make sure I didn't crash and burn. And once you get there and you discover that not everything is cracked up to what you thought it was going to be, it's just, it's devastating. So um, what ends up happening is I, I did what every young 20 something person does when they first start feeling disillusioned. And I took out $80,000 to go to grad school. I thought maybe the answer's there. And in my studies, I studied linguistics 
the thought had occurred to me that if human beings have developed a hundred different ways to communicate with one another, then maybe they had also developed a hundred different ways to be happy. And so I began a new hunt and I started searching in subcultures and going salsa dancing and taking all sorts of foreign you know, languages and, and doing exchanges and traveling and looking for the answers in other cultures. And um, it was then that I met a man. Of course I met a man and he was very handsome and attractive. And what I found refreshing about him was he actually had a job working for $10 an hour delivering frozen food supplies and was one of the most content people I had come across. And I started thinking, okay, well, I'm I'm curious about this. Maybe the answer is to lower my expectations of myself. And with that came this kind of like rebellion against everything that I had done and built. Um, I wasn't happy with that. It felt all very shallow. Uh, you know, I was like, well, maybe I don't need a, a guy with a decent golf swing and a good paying job. Maybe this is the answer over here. And I made some rash deci- decisions. I made some very poor financial decisions and I, I quit my job. I struck it out as a freelance writer. I was going to do this thing and no one was going to stop me. And um, that's when I came home one day and found 20 different identifications in this man's drawer, all with the same photograph and all with different names on them, which led to an argument. And it was like, okay, well, you know, I'm going to have more integrity at this point by sleeping in my car in a Kmart parking lot than I will staying here. And that's how I found myself there with $26 to my name and no options. I didn't have the options available. I didn't have anywhere to go. You know, my parents were long gone by then. So what do you do when you've hit rock bottom? What's the next step? How long were you there for? How long were you living in your car in a Kmart parking lot? Exactly 24 hours. (laughs) 24 hours. 24 hours, Gary. What happened was I found... um, I, was, I found God. No, I'm just kidding. I, um, <laughs> Elton? Elton was there? I, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I listen, I, you know, I, I was struggling. I was really, I was, I, I was young and I, I just didn't know what, what to do. I didn't know what to do. And I sat there and I listened uh, to this guy. He was a radio announcer and he was just going about his business and i sat there i was i was crying just a mess and this guy gets on the radio and says something that profoundly changes the course of my life <laughs> and he says hey everybody the new rihanna album is now available for pre-order and in that moment i realized two things very important number 1 art is worth paying for. Like, wow, Rihanna, that's what she does for art. She makes art. Uh, And number two, that art doesn't need to be finished yet in order to exchange it for future value. This was really critical for me to get in that moment because I thought, gosh, I don't have anything physical to sell. I think that's what most people do when they're in a bind. I couldn't even sell my car because it was upside down on the loan. I think the dealer wanted me to pay them $2,000 in order to take it off my hands. (laughs) Uh, You know, I didn't have any family jewels or bonds. I I had nothing physical to sell. And that's when I realized that maybe I could sell my ideas. 
And that's what I had been doing all of these years, you know, coming up from the trailer park and, and trying to get people to take chances on me one way or another. It was through my ideas. That's why I liked writing, why I started writing. A piece of paper is a great equalizer. Uh, words on a page, you can't tell where someone's from and you can't be biased against them. All that matters are their ideas. So it was that night that I decided to make my very first offer to the world and I said, hey, you know, here's what I'd like to do. Does, any, does anyone need any help? Can I write for you? And within 24 hours, I made my first $2,000 without having a website or the perfect social media accounts or, or anything in order. I had no idea what I was doing. But because I had the courage to make that offer, it changed the, the course of the rest of my life. You know, the other great synergy between you hearing Rihanna in the car and the relationship you'd just been in is that song of hers, Love the Way You Lie, all about broken relationships. Isn't that awful? That's like creepy. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, I think that was the album actually. Yeah, right. Rihanna and Eminem. Yeah, well, that, there it was. Ash, you've made a career out of writing, but what's curious is you've said that you're more yourself when you write than when you are meeting somebody in person. Why, why is that? So to this day, to this day, yeah, you know, we all we all face dream zappers. I call them people in person uh, who want to bring you back down to earth, and they they really maybe mean well. And uh, their suggestions are that you should play it safe and bide your time, and welcome to the real world. And this is you know that's why they call it work. It's supposed to be hard. And so for me, I felt very much like no one understood me in my actual everyday life. And I constantly had to be putting on this mask of, of acceptance when I wasn't satisfied at all. But because I didn't want to run around sounding like a spoiled brat who needed more, uh, I, I, I wasn't being myself. And that's why I started writing and I started building this community online. It was completely accidental. But I wanted a space to share these ideas that no one else understood. And that was when I quickly discovered there were actually lots of other people who understood. They just weren't in my small little tiny hometown, for example. And, um, and when I'm on the page, I'm saying exactly what I think and, who, and what I feel without the fear that you're going to be rolling your eyes at me because you can't see me. It's great. It's very free. So if you, you've got to go out on a tour for your book, no doubt, do you... Would you lack a certain amount of confidence when you meet people face-to-face, whereas when you're writing, you can be in your car, a coffee shop, Costa Rica, in a room somewhere? Would you, meeting people face-to-face, do you have the same confidence? I do. Confidence isn't the issue, but it's more about expectations at this point. I think when I when I meet people in person, you know, now it's a different scenario where – They've read my writing and they feel like they know me. They've been reading my writing for 11 years now. And so they, they've gotten that side of me. But then to me, they're a complete stranger. So the dynamic is always a little off. They say never meet, you know, never meet your idols, right? Um, and so for me, I think I, I, do, I do poorly with the pressure and expectation of having to be everyone's... Um, you know, the, their, 
gosh, I don't want to say mother, but that's what it feels like sometimes. I'm, and that's why I like doing it through things like books and containers that are more scalable and make sense where I can share ideas and a message with the world without it feeling like, um, you know, I'm giving too much of myself. So I like it, but to a point. <laughs> that leads me to a paragraph from the book, which is, was, was sort of took, took the oxygen out of the room for me. And it said, you said, sorry, I spat, slinging my purse around my neck. If you're not well enough to take care of your garden, then maybe you shouldn't have one anymore. Her eyes whirled, her head turned on the pillow. I've never regretted another statement more in my life. Well, if you're going to die, I'll let your tomatoes die. When, when I read that back to you, what emotions does that bring up, Ash? Like what, what goes on in your mind as a default in your feelings, in your mind when you hear that read back to you? Oh, shame through and through. That's the most shameful thing I've ever said. <laughs> and that's why I think it's important to write about that too. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's, that was a hard time when you're facing a dying parent as we all will. There's a part of you that I think, you know, I, I know, at least for me, I felt like it was being done to me. Like she was dying on purpose. Like I, you know, I, like she didn't want me to leave and go on. And I remember resenting that. I remember resenting very much uh, feeling like I needed to continue to take care of her. That was always our dynamic in that relationship. There's a term called parentified child. And I probably very much was one. I loved her to death, but there was a lot of responsibility on me as a kid. And so when you now are telling me that you're also going to die, that became something else I had to do and manage for you. And I remember not being able to do that very well. And so it came out with comments like that. And, you know, I think we've all got one of those stories where we've said something we dreadfully regret, but I never forgot it. <laughs> well, and I think it's, I think what's really powerful is that number one, you'll, the authenticity of you being able to share it and putting it in writing to share with the world as a lesson. And I think a lot of people say these venge vengeance, vengeful, vengeful things with vengeance vengeful. <laughs> in the, in the heat of the moment or worst case these days, fire off an email with this vengeance in their email. I'll, I'll show you and then live to regret it. If you were talking to that young girl, who slung their purse around their neck and said that to the mum just before they're about to say it to give them some advice now with all you know and the stories. Because when you're an author and a blogger, you hear a lot of feedback from people. Like you you collate a lot of stories that helps build your own understanding and your own philosophies around this. What would you say to yourself if you had a chance to pull yourself aside right before this happened? What would you say? Uh, you know, I, I think I would probably... I would probably advise myself to be okay with being sad and be okay with not knowing what to do next. Uh, there was, I always felt such a great responsibility to have it all figured out and have it figured out for her and have it figured out for me. And, um, I think that there was a lot of bravado going on at that time because it was, I felt like I was kind of an animal being backed into a corner 
And I remember going back to my dorm room because, right, I'm still in school when this was happening. And I was going back and forth, taking her to doctor's appointments. And uh, when she died, it was very sudden. I didn't, ex- I didn't see that coming. I remember my friends in the dorm room kind of held a little intervention for me after a day or two because they said, Ash, we're really concerned about you because you're not crying enough. You're, you're like weirdly laughing. <laughs> and, uh, and, and this just doesn't feel right. You need to grieve. And for me, it was very much a defense mechanism to put on that air of bravado, to make myself believe that I was strong enough to continue on and do whatever I had to do. And I think that I, I you know, I, I'm sad that I didn't get to be a little bit softer and just allow myself to be sad and sad with her. And instead, you know, marching around demanding things and, and barking orders and putting on that. I think I would advise myself to just be sad. Not having a dad... Ash, it was interesting. The comment you made was, I walked around thinking I had it all figured out. And you, with your childhood, as it seems, is part of that the fact that you didn't have a dad and you had to do a lot for yourself? Do you think that had an impact on your emotions back then, your philosophies, your thinking back then, and something that you can reflect upon now and take lessons from? Oh, certainly. You know, one of the best things about not having a dad is that you don't actually miss a dad because you've never had one before. So I think that, uh, yes, of course, from a young age, I was incredibly independent. Um, but I didn't realize that I was necessarily at a disadvantage. So that was my my advantage. Um, I, you know, and then I, I did have someone who acted as as a dad to me, and he was wonderful. He passed away when I was 14. Uh, but for me, that that life lesson was really, you know, this this realization that you really do have to learn how to rely on yourself for the things that you want in life. Because even though your parents are there, they might not be capable to do that. I mean, in that scenario, I went to the church and I gave the eulogy. Um, as a 14-year-old girl, because my mom wasn't mentally well enough to go. So yeah, it's it's like you learn how to how to rely on yourself because you have to. That has absolutely served me now as an adult. I, I mean, of course, I wouldn't wish it on anyone, but I do think that loss and hardship are some of the best things that have happened to me in certain ways. Tell me about your identity. Ash, because you could you could quite easily have lived your life as a trailer park chick. You could quite easily have taken the identity of a Kmart car park <laughs> homeless person. And you talk about identity in the book where you weren't just writing a blog, you became a writer. Now you've done a book, you've become an author. Take me through your identities of how you've seen yourself and how you see yourself today because identity has been a thread through the show for maybe the last three seasons from the James Clears and all these sorts of people who have written about identities in different ways. And it's something I'm quite fascinated by because you quite easily could have kept the identity you had 
which could lead you down some pretty dark places. But instead, you've changed that. Tell me, tell me your conscious view of identities, how you've seen yourself, and where you are today. This is a fantastic question. Uh, you know, growing up where I did in in this trailer park. I always saw myself as an outsider because of that. And also because my parents were actually originally from the city. So now you've got a couple of Democrat liberals raising this kid in the middle of a very Republican, small town conservative area. So this, this happened, I mean, this affected me in so many ways, but I always felt like an outsider. So when you've got me as this young girl, I, I felt like I didn't belong in any way, shape, or form, not in my community and certainly not um, in school for that reason, constantly having to put on this mask. But I also saw myself as someone who was very capable because I excelled academically. And my mom was very, very careful to always uh, encourage that. And just, I mean, she made the biggest deal out of any time I got a, a single little pin and getting that feedback from her, right? Like it, it was, it was important to me because I saw that, that that was kind of my ticket. And, uh, I, so I saw myself as very capable, but also as an outsider and that outsider identity has I mean, right, I now own the company called The Middle Finger Project. It is it is there embedded in me forever. And I don't think that I've actually changed that much when it comes to my identity because uh, while the things I do have changed very much, uh, I always have been and will be someone who considers themselves um, a bit of a contrarian and... Uh, right? Like I, that's, that's always been the common thread to this day. And I don't know if that's a function of never having fit in. I, you know, I think before it was, but now it's, it's a conscious choice. Uh, that is my identity. And maybe that is part of why I do what I do. It's really interesting. Ash, I want to try and put a few things together here to get your views, but we interviewed a guy a couple of seasons ago called Jay, Jason Redmond, Jay Redmond, who was a Navy SEAL who was shot in the face in Afghanistan and very, very brutal situation, went to hospital, had 27 surgeries. It was just, and he had a sign that people can find easily online. It's put in Jay Redmond, uh, red poster in his hospital room. So he had this sign on the door, which even, even one of the presidents saw and came to visit him in hospital because of this sign. And the sign said, don't come in here with pity or feel sorry. I did... I, I, I got injured doing what I love doing to protect people that I love for a country that I love. And whatever happens to be, I'm going to overcome it. So what's happened is that over the years, he's become the overcome guy. So his identity now is built around that sign, which got a lot of publicity. President saw it. So now Jay is the overcome guy. And one of the things he said in the show was that there are some days where he doesn't want to do something or it's too hard. And he goes, whoa, hang on a second. I'm the overcome guy. Everyone looks at me to overcome this. Get out of the seat. Go and do it. Do you, do you see a, is there a default sometimes of voice inside your head that goes, yeah, I really should just go along with this. I really should just do what everybody else does. I should just be common like everybody else. Is there a default that goes, hang on, Ash, you're the middle, you're the middle, finger, you're the middle finger chick. 
Like we can't do this. We have to, we have to do what we believe in. Does that default ever go through your mind? <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. To to my to my benefit and to my detriment. Um, I can't so much as send an average Christmas card because it pains me to do something that is just like, oh wow, that was unoriginal. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, that's it's great. Yeah, it's my identity is who I am. That's definitely why I'm ordering twenty middle finger pinatas and not just sending these books around in a plain yellow envelope as they, you know, was suggested to me. Um, I do take pride in the creative approach. Um, right. The, the creative approach is how I've done everything. So without that, I certainly wouldn't be myself, but there's also the scrappy identity. And someone had said to me recently, you know, gosh, when you grow up identifying as a scrappy person, like that is who you are and, uh, you know, you'll do anything and figure it out. It becomes really difficult to to let things be easy because then it takes away your identity. It almost can't be easy because then who are you? Can you order 21 middle finger pinatas and send us one? Because that'd look really cool hanging in the studio. (laughs) That'd that'd look so cool hanging in the corner of the studio over there. That'd be brilliant. I mean, they are, they have bright pink fingernails, but I would happily do so. Even better. I love bright pink fingernails. Actually, it's it's funny. There's a history to you being here, Ash, because for in our seventh season now, from our voiceover guy, AP, from the voiceover booth, looks out each morning and has been giving us the middle finger. And I thought that meant one thing, but what he was really saying was <laughs> we should get Ash Amberger on the show. So what I, I realise now for seven seasons he's been saying, hey, get this chick on. Uh, so I think the pinata hanging down would give me a chance to send Ash Amberjade back into the voice saying, I got your message and here's one for you, a pink pinata. It's fantastic. The only way AP would be happy with a pinata was if it was full of bottles of wine, though. That's the problem. Well, what do you think I'm stuffing them with? Oh, even better. More the more reason to send us one. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I I always joke that I've got trademark over the middle finger project emoji and the gesture as a whole. So, you know, it. collecting. Yeah, I'm collecting on that. <laughs> I, I don't think there's a more powerful symbol in the world, is there? Let's be honest. Mm, yeah, you know, the, the United States government wasn't so thrilled when I actually did go to trademark it. They were like, "Ooh, that's too scandalous to trademark and the, the public <laughs> will be offended. Nice. If I get back to your writing, Ash, something that's quite curious and it's been something we've been hearing about for a number of years with people who are creative in what endeavor or wanting to be more productive is getting up early in the morning you actually said that getting up early for you and making that a ritual or routine actually had a massive impact on your writing how did you go about doing that like what what crystallized that moment where you went actually this really is helping my creative process well the first step is to move to the country of costa rica because the sun comes up so early that you won't even know you're getting up early you think it's like nine o'clock but it's really 4 30 uh <laughs> that's the first step but yes every day i woke up for three hours a day i still do this uh i've been doing this now for the past almost what five years waking up every day and writing first thing in the morning for three hours because 
I have learned that I'm a person who, if I go outside in the morning instead, all of a sudden I'm like, oh, look, there's people out here. There are things to be doing and wine to be had. And then I won't ever come back. So I've had to discipline myself that way. And it's the best thing to do ever because everyone knows not to bother me for those three hours. They feel like mine. They're the only time when I can really say to people, hey, don't bother me. I'm working. Because every other time when you work from home, it's kind of just like, oh, it's, I mean, she's just home. Just we'll call her. But not for those three hours. Those are mine. And I enjoy taking them. I, I, it's it's all, probably also helps that your partner Carlos in Costa Rica runs a charter boat service. So he's getting up early anyway. <laughs> what that made me think of is a breakup puts you in the car park in Kmart. So I suspect with your personality, the approach you now take to life, how was it challenging finding somebody like Carlos who was aligned to your values, your drive, your approach to life. Was that, has that always, has that been a challenge for you to find somebody who was aligned? No, no. I've met the most interesting people around the world. Uh, fascinating, really creative, driven human beings. And I, I think that, I mean, travel is the best thing you can ever do for any reason, certainly for personal development and also for apparently relationships because I wanted nothing to do with a relationship at the time. And that's, I mean, just how much I, I adored him. I ended up going to live in Costa Rica to be where he was, but I had no intention of doing that. I don't think it was hard at all. No, I think that when you're actually being true to your voice and who you are and showing up that way, you, you, you just, you attract it. You're like this radiant effervescent thing that happens and the right people come to you that make sense. And I think that's actually the brilliance behind the branding of the middle finger project is that it acts as this great filter. It filters in the right, uh, filters out the folks who would be offended by it. And, um, and, and, and that's what happens. I mean, following your voice is so important. Uh, I saw a couple of <laughs> profiles on no, the dating app Bumble the other day. Are you familiar with Bumble? It's been a long time since I've done dating. <laughs> Bumble's just like any of the others, Tinder. I mean, you're swiping left and swiping right, but the female has to approach the male. So what was interesting about this is just simply that my girlfriend's, you know, scrolling through and I'm, I'm looking just like, wow, look at this. And the men were so forthcoming no Trump supporters, atheists, don't want kids. I mean, very much so. And I thought, gosh, this is great. You have to be so clear in who you are and what you want because, you know, you don't have a chance to sit around and talk about it. These people are scrolling left and right, left and right. And I wished so much that more business owners considered doing that and more people in general, because guess what? If you met that guy on the street, it's unlikely that he's going to start the conversation that way. But I almost wish they would. This was my advantage with being a blogger and a writer. I was putting myself out there on the page every day. So, you, you, I mean, you bet your butt that Carlos read all of that and he knew exactly who I was. And it was great. It, it's wonderful. You know what occurs to me hearing you tell the story of the girls having to approach the guys is if it was the other way around, they couldn't call it Bumble, they'd have to call it Fumble. (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah, I had to read the backstory on that because I thought Bumble. I didn't think that that name made sense because I thought, oh, like bumbling around. Yeah, 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 yeah. (laughs) I can imagine all these guys just falling over themselves trying to introduce themselves to all these women. It's funny. Right, but it turns out it's a reference to the bumblebee. And uh, I didn't get that at first. Yeah, Ash, the (laughs) the book talks about, and you you just mentioned it, this whole being authentic, trusting oneself. And the book talks about having radical self-trust. What I'd be curious of your thoughts on from your own experience and hearing from your readers and your followers and your fans is that I suspect a lot of people today, rather than doing the right thing or the thing they should do, is they have this voice of justification, which justifies them not doing it. And it stops them. It makes up all the excuses not to get stuff done. And when you talk about radical self-trust, how do I know what voice to trust? How do I know the voice that I'm hearing and trusting is the right voice and not the voice of excuses or justification? Now, Gary, I'm going to be honest with you. (laughs) I have very little patience. <laughs> and I, I I struggle when I talk to people who are so <laughs> they're they're so wrapped up in in you know should I or should I not or should I or should I not and the thing that I've learned is that you have to stop putting the responsibility and the pressure on yourself to know what's going to happen next and if it's the right thing or not because you're never going to know that unless you're like you know, an oracle or something, you're never going to know if it's the right thing. You have to engage with the world and experiment and trial and error. It's the only way you will ever do anything. And so you can't think your way out of this. You can't think your way into something better. You can't sit there in your living room and find your passions. You're not all of a sudden magically going to wake up and have a little bit more confidence. The only way to get it is by going outside and trying something new. So you can see, you hear my voice. I'm like, I lose my patience. I don't understand. Just go outside and go, go, go. Seth Godin told me that once. Go, 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 Ash. Stop thinking it. Stop overthinking everything. I I guess in a way... I've heard you say that we should become a thought leader. So you're in your couch, sitting in your house, your flat, your apartment, and you've given the advice to say, what what are you going to become a thought leader in? We're about to launch this book. (laughs) What is Ash Ambergier a thought leader in? How would you qualify what you think you are a thought leader in? (laughs) I absolutely exist to give other people their own voice. Time and time again, that's what people tell me from my writing. I can tell you till, I, till I'm blue in the face how to write a proposal or sell your ideas or make money or whatever it is. But time and time again, people are like, hey, thanks so much. I read your writing because your voice helps me find mine. So that's the common thread. That's the product that I'm actually uh, selling is, is that, a little bit of confidence. Yes, thought leadership, ideas. These are my ideas. Just to wrap this little shindig up, a couple of quick things. What's really ironic that you said, as a little girl, you're actually very shy. You're a quiet kid. And even today, you say that there is that little girl in you. Yet your persona is very gregarious, outgoing, and very confident. How do you navigate that, Ash? Because if that's 
if that's where you came from and you know it's still inside you as an identity, yet you've got this persona from everything you do, from the beautiful visuals on your websites, your writing, now going out to the world as an author, how do you actually navigate that? You know, growing up with a clinically anxious parent has a distinct benefit. And one of the benefits is that they become very good at navigating through fear. It's what they have to do every single day of their life. And I remember my own mom telling me, you know, when I was, when I was young, actually in the seventh grade, I remember distinctly going to my very first dance with a guy who was one year older than me. His name was Matt Cottrell and he was smoking hot. And I was just, I, I, I was a nervous wreck. And she said, Ash, you know what? All you have to do is just ask other people questions about themselves. Because when you make other people feel like a star, they will love you for it. And I started doing that. And I've done that my entire life. I mean, this interview process is actually bizarre for me because now I can't be asking you questions. And trust me, I have tried in interviews before. <laughs> um, <and laughs> but it, it, was, it was a great starting point for me because I learned that what she said was a true, but really all of us to some extent feel very much the same way. And I think that when you make other people feel like you're genuinely interested in them and they are the most fascinating person in the room right now, you take the pressure off yourself to have to be the most fascinating person in the room. And then what happens is you just naturally start talking to people and you stop worrying about, you know, what you sound like. And if did you say the right thing and, and just, I mean, genuinely look at them and say, wow, this person standing in front of me is the most fascinating person right now. I'm so curious about them. What can I ask you? And that's how I started. And then I found out that people actually were fascinating. And I was no longer pretending that they were. But really, when you listen to people and you talk to them, they are fascinating. And I think that's helped develop my own personality because I'm no longer scared to talk to people because they actually uh, have so much to say. And it, it's, it's, it's brilliant when you stop thinking so much about yourself and start thinking about you know what this person um, has experienced in this life and how you can uh, apply that to your own. Right at the, the very end of the book, there was a statement you said, and boy, do I hope this book has made you unsatisfied. And it made me think of a quote by a lady called Helen Delland who said, perhaps absolute satisfaction is the death of desire. And I'm just wondering, people will buy this book, hear you interviewed, see your stories. And Ryan Munsey, who does the Better Human Project, said whenever he reads a book, he's always trying to work out what's the author trying to say. And I guess based on being unsatisfied and absolute satisfaction being the death of desire, what's the author's desire from this book, The Middle Finger Project? What's your absolute number one desire for people, the message to take from the book? Stop caring about what everyone else is doing what everyone else is thinking, what they're thinking about you, what they're thinking about your decisions, and start learning how to think critically about the world and your place in it and what you want from it. And understand that your ideas are valuable 
And that is what I really want all of us to be doing is contributing our own ideas, our, our own, our own creative works of originality uh, that so many of us want to do so desperately, but are terrified to be doing. We need you to stand up and do that. Uh, it's the only way that you will end up filling that that void of, you know, the happiness versus meaningfulness. And the only way that we will ever benefit from everything that you know and have experienced. To wrap this up, it would be wrong of me not to ask you. You worked in an ice cream store for eight years. What's your favorite flavor? <laughs> Mint chocolate chip. Uh, in a hot fudge sundae <laughs> with rainbow sprinkles. You stole Thank my you nifty so ninety much. question. <laughs> he's, stop, he's looking at my. He's across the other side of the desk, looking at my questions. <laughs> you should give him the middle finger pinata. Uh, yeah, exactly. Thank you very much. <laughs> Actually, just just one final thing, and I, and I this uh, this is just something I'm curious about. You you've said before that your PR background was it used to be about selling the spin and your job was to create copy or the angle or the spin in order to move products. How, when you're doing your own product and obviously the naming of the, of the project, this, this, this very cleverly marketed and put together. It must've been funny in your own mind to want to do something authentic and real and being of service to others, but you knew your background, your job was to create spin. Where, where is all that in this? Like, is there any, where have you put spin into this or have you been spinless? You know what? This reminds me of a conversation I had with my editor at Penguin Random House. And we were having a conversation about, you know, what we were doing with the book, who the book is for, et cetera, et cetera. And The first thing she told me that I think is just useful in and of its own was, listen, the goal of this book is to make 50% of the population hate you, not like you. And so that was great. That was great to have in mind. But then she said, listen, Ash, you know, I want you to write this book the way that you want to write this book. I'm not going to tell you how to write it. I want you to write this book because... There's value in in the stories and your experiences and the things that you have extrapolated from those, and that's going to be the book. But what we can change and what we will continue to change and mold and tweak as we go is the packaging because we can always change the packaging. And I, I understood that completely to mean exactly what I've been doing. So I've got all sorts of documents now that have uh, all different kinds of different media outlets, mm-hmm. magazines, and they're in all sorts of different industries. And I've taken the lessons from this book, and then I've I've written like a thousand different headlines and pitches for all these different industries as it would apply to them. And I think that's great. Like you've got a product, but um, that's independent from the way that you package the product, and you can package it any way you want to appeal to anyone in the world, as long as you know what they want. I think it's really interesting. I think, yeah, and I, and I would say to, to 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 listeners, readers, don't take the book title for perceptually what you think it is and what you know to be common. Because, and it's, I guess, it's summed up in there's a it's a paragraph in there which I really liked. Ash, just to to finish up this little shindig, 
It said, the same will happen to you when you get the courage to try something new. You will threaten people. Good people, reasonable people, trusted people, people you've known for years. Your ambition will be a sore reminder of their lack. You'll be mocked. You'll be teased. You'll be questioned. You'll be poo-pooed. And for a very brief moment in time, you'll wish to reconsider, but don't. And I just think this book is just, it's actually rich with reminders for us to have those dreams and have a crack. And as Seth Godin said to you, go, go, go. So we're very stoked to have you here. Thank you so much for- Well, hang on. We can't wrap up yet. We've got to do a nifty 90. Have you got 90 (laughs) seconds? Of course I do. (laughs) Robbo's Nifty 90. So the first thing, uh, three words that would describe yourself. Loud, honest, sincere. What's the last meal you regret eating and why? The sweet potato fries I just had for lunch. There was way too many of them and I ate them all. Good on you. I'd do the same thing. Uh, Are you a dog (laughs) or a cat person? Cat. What's something you've always wanted to do but haven't? Skydive. Wow. wow. Uh, What's the last movie you went to see? So not something you watched on telly, but one you actually went and sat in a theatre. There's one with women. I'm really bad at pop culture and movies. There, the Hustle is that one? Okay, that'll do. Uh, I think what's that your, was it. What's your favorite place to read a book? Bed at night. What's your favorite swear word? Fuck. And what's three things you would take with you if family, friends, animals, all that stuff were safe? If your house was on fire, what three possessions would you grab to take with you? My diaries from 1990, 1994, and 1997. Wow, very specific. <laughs> specific. And here's the big question. You wake up in the morning, your mojo's not quite happening. Uh, today's not the day to get out and write. What's the song that you go to on your iPad, iTunes, Spotify, whatever, to get you suitably motivated for the day? Taylor Swift, Bad Blood. Do you really? I do. Yeah, I love Taylor Swift. She's got a new documentary out called Americana, and it is good. Do you know what? I'm 50 years old, uh, but work in CHR radio, so contemporary hit radio, and I've got to say, I get the Taylor Swift thing. It's her music's not my taste, but I get it. I really do get it (laughs) as a 50 year old male. Isn't that bizarre? There you go. I love it. She grew up just miles away from me here in in Reading, Pennsylvania. So she's my girl. We get each other. She just doesn't know it yet. Nice one. Well, can I just say for someone who doesn't suffer fools very easily, you've been very patient with us for the last hour. Oh, I think you're lovely. And surprise, we just got news the other day that the Middle Finger Project book will be in airports and train stations in Australia. And it's also being picked as the Book of March. Oh, wow. What's, what's the Book of March mean? Ed, educate educate a, um, an uneducated, clearly uneducated literary person. I, well, I think it means just like the month of March. It is this organization's book pick for the month of March. Oh, wow. Congratulations. And, uh, tra- yeah, apparently they're in charge of the train stations and the plane, uh, okay. plane bookstores, airport well, ne- bookstores. Next time I'm in an airport. Even if I've already read the book, I'll buy a copy just to, uh, to make sure that you get the royalties. You should just pretend to be me and say, hey, do you mind if I sign this? <laughs> <laughs> He'll I'll buy it. F- yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll flip him the bird. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, that's all you got to do. Fit right in. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Hi, I'm Maria Gronberg. I'm a climber. I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro four times and summited Mount Everest this year of May. Oh, man, I'm struggling through the Mojo Show. The Mojo Radio Show. I reckon that's got to be the greatest title of a book in a long time. Yeah, it is, and it's kind of... When I got the book, I wasn't sure it was sent through to me. And I thought, oh, I'll, have a, I'll have a browse, do the right thing, as I do with every book that's sent to me. I have a browse. And I actually found myself getting into it. And it is a great title. And I think being a marketing and advertising PR person, Ash, has used that to get the attention. Mm. But when you look at it, I mean, the takeouts for me in hearing Ash talk during the interview and reading the book is she's created a pretty powerful tribe. And- I think that comes from her strength is knowing what she's really good at, which is her irreverent writing style, and then saying, well, that's what I love doing. How do I actually make some money from it? Yet the sad thing for me, the thing I love about Ash doing this is that everyone can do this. This is not something some people can do, others can't. This is something we could all do if we just think about what is it you're really good at and what do you love doing? And it's funny that probably the last two years on the show, we've had a number of people talk about motivation. And motivation is said to come from finding something you're really good at and doing it and digging into it. And it's something that I just read last week in Marcus Buckingham's new book called The Nine Lies About Work is we quite often don't ask ourselves, what are we really good at? And especially for someone who runs a team, do you really understand what skills and competencies your team have where they feel good about their skills and they think they're good at them? So mm. I don't know. I took a lot from Ash's thing. It's, I guess it's easy to look at her stuff and go, well, her back was up against the wall, living in a car, lost her family, lost a relationship, wasn't sure what to do. But I don't know. Maybe your back doesn't need to be against the wall. Maybe you could just have a a moment where you sit down and go through this and I, I like the idea that she she writes for herself and she has the guts to hit publish. She's certainly mm. got her own style and her own voice. And I think that, that that quote that came from Seth Godin that he sent to her an email saying, if you've got any doubts about doing what you're going to do, go, go, go. And uh Yes. So I like Ash. I I think I think it's a it's a worthwhile read and I think she's onto something. You know what I loved about the story was and something we've talked about for years on the Mojo show and probably we haven't had a chance to demonstrate so often is that yes, her back was up against the wall, but I love the light bulb moment. I mean, she was simply sitting in the car listening to the radio. Mm. Yeah, and true. bang. Mm. That moment of inspiration just hits, you know, mm. that, that to me, that's, that's really cool. Shout it, shout it, shout it out loud. I've got a quick shout out this week from our Facebook page. Mm. Uh, g'day to Chris Sargent who from here on in will be known as The Sarge. The Sarge. The Sarge is from Melbourne, but we won't hold that against him. He shared our our video, uh, our darts video on his timeline the other day and wrote this. One of the best podcasts available, a regular lineup of some of the world's most interesting people interviewed by one of the best radio duos going around. On my listening list for 2020. Isn't that nice of him? 
Desarge. Desarge. He's on it. I'd also say that that case of Desecchi was pretty well spent, wouldn't you? <laughs> I think it was very well spent. Thanks, Sarge. <laughs> the Mojo Radio Show. Lola. I'm listening. I have a challenge if you care to accept it. As long as it rocks. <laughs> oh, here we go. Lola, your choice. Do you have an appropriate song to take us out? Now, here's the brief. Based on raising your middle finger and if you need any reference point, cast your eyes to voice booth to your right. Thank you, AP. <laughs> something, we need a song that is something about being uncommon and that's kind of a thread we've had through the show is finding people who are swimming against the stream, not moving with the herd, being uncommon, breaking away, doing it your way and fighting the good fight against mediocrity. So, Lola, if you had to pick a song that was very us that met that brief, where would you go? I want you to know Perfect. We're out. I'm happy for you. I wish nothing but the best for you both. I know the version of me Is she perverted like me? Would she go down on you in a theater? Does she speak eloquently? And would she have your baby? I'm sure she'd make a really excellent mother Cause the love that you gave that we made Wasn't able to make it enough for you to be open wide
Mojo Radio Show is produced and recorded in the basement of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at The Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. To help us get better and give more people the opportunity to touch up their mojo, you can now find us on Patreon. Follow the links on the front page of our website and for a coffee or two a month, you'll get regular bonus material and a copy of Explosive Hits 19, the best of the Mojo Radio Show. In the meantime, to polish your next audio production, check out voodoosound.com.au. For more about Gary, see garybirtwhistle.com and to book me, go to andrewpeters.com. Andrew Peters speaking. See you next time.